All right, how you doing? Welcome to the Atlantic on Pacific. We have some of the best lineups of oysters in Virginia Beach, let alone the state of Virginia. We've got some of my favorites, the Mary Blue out of New Brunswick, Canada, but we're also representing some really local oysters, the Shore Maiden out of Cape Charles, the Misty Points out of Post Bay. Now's the time to eat oysters. The waters are nice and cold, so they're gonna kind of sweeten up the meats and give them a little bit of a creaminess, but also keep that salinic, briny saltiness that you look for in the oyster, kind of like kissing the key sea herself, excuse me. The favorite way to do it is to start with a Canadian oyster, like the North Shore Gold, and then work your way down the coast so you can really kind of see what the water, waters offer you to make everything a more well-rounded experience. Everything else is done by nature. All we have to do is chuck them in the cleanest way possible and then let you all enjoy. This is the Pendulum Land Podcast. Welcome infrastructure junkies to our show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. I'm Dave Arnold, and with me is Kristen Bennett. We are your go-to source for the best information within the right-of-way industry. We are your primary source of news, trends, developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. Today, we have a very unique and special topic. Oysters. 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 Do you love them? Do you hate them? Do you eat them? And why in the world would they be the focus of an eminent domain right-of-way podcast? I'll tell you why, Kristen, because there was an important legal decision that came out of the Commonwealth of Virginia where a group of oystermen sued a coastal city and a sanitation district for inverse condemnation. They claimed that the city and the sanitation district polluted a local river causing their oyster beds and their oyster leases to be condemned. And they wanted big damages for that. Wow. Yeah, we're going to find out what happened in that case in just a minute. But first, let's take a second to recognize our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Pender and Coward PC, the law firm that defended the Oyster Inverse Condemnation case, both at the trial level and before the Supreme Court of Virginia. My colleagues here, Dave Arnold and Ross Green, manage that law firm's very busy eminent domain practice group, where they only represent condemning authorities. They have handled hundreds of eminent domain cases, they have litigated relocation matters, and they have defended inverse condemnation cases involving flooding, aircraft noise, and yes, oyster beds. Years ago, Ross and Dave recognized that to deliver their clients the best representation, they had to master not just the principles of eminent domain, but the entire right-of-way process. Accordingly, they both have achieved the SRWA designations through the International Right-of-Way Association, and they are both trained and certified to teach that organization's legal courses. Check out their right-of-way blog at rightofway.law. Okay, let's get back to the case. It's called Johnson versus the City of Suffolk and the Hampton Road Sanitation District. It was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court of Virginia. Now, to help us examine this case, we have Ross Green, an eminent domain attorney who practices in Virginia and North Carolina. And Ross argued this case before the Virginia Supreme Court. We also have with us Robert Thomas of the Pacific Legal Foundation. The Pacific Legal Foundation is a national nonprofit legal organization that defends the individual liberties and constitutional rights of Americans who are threatened by government overreach and abuse. You guys may remember Rob Thomas from previous episodes, in particular his very famous spam haiku. Robert is a fellow spam enthusiast, just as we are. Now, Robert's foundation filed 
what's called an amicus brief in this case. Amicus brief? An amicus brief. They filed it with the Virginia Supreme Court. And what that means, that they're not a party to the case, but they have an interest in the outcome of that case. Mm. And they filed their brief on behalf of the plaintiffs. So we have Robert with the voice of the plaintiffs here and Ross with the voice of the defendants. This is a bona fide celebrity death match. It's going down. Okay, so... You know, I'm kind of lost. They all sound really good. Do you have a recommendation? Like, if we were going to get, like, three or four different kinds of oysters to try, what would you suggest? Absolutely. If everybody at the table is eating oysters, I'd definitely suggest doing four of at least three different oysters so you can kind of get that whole tasting experience throughout the whole that. process. Yeah. So definitely do the North Shore Gold out of Prince Edward Island. They have a nice creamy sweetness, but then it's also for people that are not familiar with oysters, an easy eating oyster. Head to the Shore Maiden in Cape Charles. Those are a little bit bigger in size, but they kind of eat and feel like a Canadian oyster, but they're big like a Virginia oyster. And then go to North Carolina and get some of the Hatteras salt so you can get the three different waters, three different temperatures, but all the same idea with the bivalves in the system. Hi, man. You guys think that sounds good? Yeah, man. Yep. Sounds wonderful. All right, let's do that. Let's all get right. four of each of those. Perfect. We'll take care of it for you. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay, so this was an inverse condemnation case, which essentially means that an entity that has the power of eminent domain has acquired a right or property interest without compensating the owner for that right or property interest, right? We agree with that's that's what it means? Yes. Sure. Okay. okay. All right, but but in this case, we're, there's a claim that there were oystermen who had leased oyster beds from the Commonwealth of Virginia for about $1.50 an acre, and their oyster beds got shut down because of pollution in the Nansman River in coastal Virginia. They were claiming that that was the government's responsibility because it was a taking without compensation. Now, Robert, I know that your outfit filed an amicus brief in the Supreme Court, and you're very familiar with the theories that were set forth in this case. Can, can you give us an overview of the theories in the uh, case in the lower court, in the circuit court in the uh, city of Suffolk, Virginia? Of course. You know, it's pretty straight up on this case. The elements that you have to allege in order to make out an inverse condemnation takings claim is you have to say, well, you know, go check the text of the, of the Constitution. It says private property shall not be taken for public use without compensation. So they said, we have private property, a lease, an oysters. You know, leases, leases have been held to be property uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, they're, they're common property interests. We have oysters. Things are property. Uh, a few years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court said that uh, raisins are property in a somewhat famous or maybe infamous case out of California. Personal property or these type of things are property. Um, it was taken because the pollution in the river made it so that these oysters were useless, couldn't be harvested during certain times of the year. And that's a taking, and therefore the uh, Constitution of Virginia in this case, not the Constitution of the United States, says that or requires that the uh, defendants, the government in this case, pay compensation. And that, that's, you know, it's a pretty straightforward claim with those three elements. Well, let me, let me ask a question there. So the, the theory is that the governmental entity, in this case it was a local city and a sanitation district, was causing pollution in the river. They were responsible for the pollution. Wasn't that like an underpinning of the plaintiff's theory here? Oh, yes. You know, there, there, there's at least two ways that property can be taken, right? It's outright seizure 
well, three maybe if you count it, you know, a seizure with with an offer of compensation or a, pro or a providing compensation, not applicable here. That's usually eminent domain, right? Straight up taking. You have a seizure where the government simply takes your property, doesn't pay you for it, and doesn't offer to pay you for it. Um, in which case, that that's one type. The other type is where the government makes it, you know, effectively takes your property. In this case, that's the same thing. So it's kind of like, you know, it's it sounds funny to talk about a flooding case in the middle of a river, but that's how I kind of conceptualized this. The property owners were claiming that the government essentially flooded their property with sewage, inundated the property with sewage twice a year, making it unusable. And in regular, what I would call, you know, dry land flooding cases, those are pretty straight up inverse cases where the, the government through some action takes some action that causes private property on land to be flooded with water. And the courts have regularly held that in most cases that's taking requiring compensation. And so conceptually, again, because it's kind of weird to talk about uh, flooding by sewage in the middle of a river, but that's conceptually how I, how I viewed it. Well, let's be clear. The, the flooding, as you call it, was due to heavy rainfall. So, so what we had was the oystermen claiming be, when there were flooding events, which were the result of force majeure or heavy rainfall or storms or whatever, and it caused all this runoff, which went into the Nansman River, that runoff carried with it certain pollutants into the river, right? Right. Over, I mean, essentially, over, you know, overflow. And, yeah, and to be to be fair to the plaintiffs here, I think what they were saying is they that the plaintiff, uh, excuse me, the defendants, the city and HRSD did not construct sufficient resources to handle that overflow, so it by default went into the river. Yeah, very common problem in growing municipalities, right? The the wastewater treatment infrastructure does not support the increase in size and population, and so especially when there's heavy runoff, stormwater runoff into the drains. Where does that go? It goes into the into the water treatment system. It's got to go somewhere. And when it overflows or, or it backs capacity of the treatment plants uh, are, is reached, it's got to go somewhere. And most many, many times that's into these types of places, rivers in my home jurisdiction, Hawaii, it's the beaches. We call them brown tides, by the way. Oh, uh, don't even don't even yes. want to know. <laughs> hey, as the layperson, let me can I ask a couple of questions here? Sure. Okay. So first of all, when you say these oyster beds became unusable, like, did it kill the oysters? Did they die? Like in my mind as a lay person, I'm like, well, don't, isn't that like, don't oysters like eat that stuff? What, what know, was the result we, there? We, we, we try not to think of that when we eat of course. shellfish and oysters, you know, where <laughs> they live and what they feed on. Right. We try to kind of block that out of our mind. And, you know, I'm not sure on that one, but I, I, the oysters became, uh, unusable for their primary purpose, which is as a human food. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this was uh, the, the property owners in this case, the oystermen were actually prohibited from harvesting oysters because there was a uh, designation as a condemnation zone. I forget the actual term, but there was, it says you basically cannot harvest oysters for human consumption during these periods. So they were prohibited from going out and picking up the oysters. Yeah, you know, uh, that that's a different question, I suppose, from whether, you know, you and I, if we were stranded on a desert island, might eat these things anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, by all, by, I guess, uh, food safety standards, uh, no, right? That's my understanding. At yeah, least. Essentially, essentially, I think what it was is a third-party state agency measures the level of 
let me say it, fecal coliform in the water. And when it gets above a certain level, they'll close down the oyster grounds and say, you cannot harvest oysters from your own oyster beds. And so essentially the plaintiffs were saying that was the responsibility of the defendants and therefore they had to pay just compensation. Now, we're still talking about the trial level. Like the, the lawsuit was filed. Robert has given the basic theory of the plaintiffs. Ross, what do you say as a defense attorney in this case? Well, the initial uh, defense here is that this isn't anything new. This has been going on in Virginia forever, practically. You, oysters are not anything that people just started eating or that this industry just started occurring. So this argument got dealt with back in about 1919 in a very similar posture, an oysterman named Mr. Darling and a city right down the road from the city in this case, the city of Suffolk, the case in Darling, the city of Newport News. So Darling versus the city of Newport News, roughly the plaintiffs in the same posture, municipality in the same posture, goes to the Virginia Supreme Court. Virginia Supreme Court essentially says, you don't have a choice, municipalities, the public waters are in essence the public sewer and you've had a historic right to use them as the public sewer so we don't find that there is a taking and then it gets appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court so there's a similarly titled U.S. Supreme Court case and the U.S. Supreme Court case the U.S. Supreme Court says well we agree under the federal constitution essentially the same outcome. So Virginia Constitution, you've got a greater protection for property rights than the federal constitution. Under the federal constitution, no taking, and we'll defer to the Virginia Supreme Court about the Virginia Supreme Court's interpretation of Virginia constitutional protections, so no state taking, you know, case sustained. So you end up with a existing precedent saying they don't have a taking here. We say, okay, well, court, look at the existing precedent under stare decisis, the rule to use existing precedent where you can court. And the court says, essentially, we agree. Wait a minute. <laughs> okay, Ross, you just got real lawyery on me. You said some things. I don't know what they mean, but I'll tell you for, for words, again, words. Word, lots of big words, lots yeah. of big words. Yeah. Again, as the layperson and the non-attorney in the conversation, as I typically find myself being, I think of inverse condemnation like, oh gosh, we built this highway and we took like three square feet of this property and we didn't pay for it. So we're going to have to go back and fix that. I don't think in a million years, I never, I never would have thought like oyster beds or pollution in oyster beds would have had, like that doesn't even fall into that category for me. So what was the thing you just said? Star? It's, it's stare decisis is the rule that the court should use the existing case law that it already has when it has case law on the same facts dealing with the same subject. So if they've okay. already decided the case once, they should still decide the case in the same way going forward so that you as the public know and the attorneys know that you're going to get a similar result when you have a similar case that's been decided before. Got it. Okay. Okay. So so essentially what Ross is saying is there was a 100-year-old Supreme Court case which had already decided the issue, which okay. had already said, you take your oysters subject to the quality of the water flowing over them. That was existing United States Supreme Court law. Okay. Because okay. back in the day, now, now here's the thing, and Robert's about to make this point. Back in the day, <laughs> our rivers and our tributaries 
were our garbage dumps. And you dumped your junk in the river, the cities did, in the localities, which took it out to the ocean and got rid of it way back in the day. With no regard for With oysters no regard or anything for, else. Right, right. Got it. And so, Robert, let's let's hear from you on that. So we have a 100-year-old United States Supreme Court case which says you take your oysters subject to the pollution in the water, but the oystermen still, in light of that case, filed this lawsuit. Two things. Uh, for, you know, one, uh, some background on your question of stare decisis, and then second, probably a, maybe a more technical legal point. And the first thing is stare decisis. I always like to think of that one as uh, to a court, it's more important to get things over than to get things right necessarily. Mm. <laughs> and think of the yeah, think of the chaos there would be um, in the judicial system if the court consist constantly overruled recent decisions and said, well, you know, we I know we said this last year, but hey, <laughs> new new judges, uh, uh, new arguments. Uh, let's just throw that overrule last year's precedent and on the same facts. Here's a new decision. And then, you know, ad infinitum that, you know, one of the points of law is not so much maybe to get it right, but to fix, you know, the goalposts. So at least we know we've got 99 yards to the end zone as opposed to 50 yards or 100 yards. Right. So the, the, the point of the law is simply to take a position and, and let us get on with our lives and, fix, you know, do our do our thing based on what the law is. Um, so yeah, it's more important to get things over than to get them right. And you know, here's here's what how Darling is described. Here's what the court said in Darling. And you know, see if this still, if you still want this to be a statement of what the law is. Generally speaking, private rights and land under tidal waters are subject to the right of the state to use such waters as a depository for sewage. You know, maybe we think of that like a toilet easement or a doo doo easement. What? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Doo-doo easement. Y'all wanted it simplified. See, I know. Yeah, I, I, yeah. You, you did not get too lawyery from, from me on that. I got it. I got okay, it. Right. Doo-doo easement. That, got it. That was not the technical legal term. The, the technical aspects of this, of why this case was uh, framed in a different way, was the, uh, the Darling case uh, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court from the Virginia Supreme Court, well, now 121 years ago, was mostly about whether this was a taking under the U.S. Constitution, the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. The way that the Johnson plaintiffs framed their complaint was one solely as a matter of Virginia law. Under the Virginia Constitution, the, the status of the oysters and the lease under Virginia law. Of course, Virginia property law defines, for the most part, defines uh, the property rights. But the critical difference, at least as I saw it, was they did not make an allegation or, or did not focus on any allegations that this was a violation of the Fifth or Fourteenth Amendment. So not that the Virginia Supreme Court could overrule the U.S. Supreme Court, but there was, I don't even think that was uh, in the ballpark or, or on the table for them. Right. So, okay. All right. Now, Ross, Ross, uh, you filed on behalf of the defendants, or at least one of the defendants, uh, a, a myriad of defenses. Number one, you've already identified that there was existing case law, which said you took your oysters subject to the water quality. And there were some other very important defenses too. Do you want to hit the highlights there? I think one, it's a little bit complicated, but maybe skipping a step. Darling doesn't just say you have a doo-doo easement. The thing that, <laughs> oh, the, the, the thing that Robert is saying, 
And the thing that Dave is saying to me are different things, and I think that the Virginia Supreme Court said both of those things in its opinion, one of which is a historical situation that has changed over time, the other of which I think is a continuing legal situation. One, the obviously the doo-doo easement situation of everybody gets to use the rivers as a public sewage dump is not a modern situation. People are trying to move away from that. But what you've got here is a lease. The people involved, the plaintiffs, the oystermen, are leasing property from the state. So they only get a certain amount of property rights from the state in that lease. It's not saying the lease isn't a property right, but what do you get under the lease when you're borrowing essentially public property Land under a river in Virginia is owned by the state, so it's the property of the public. So, And you're paying money to the government, to the public, to essentially to rent it, to borrow it from the public for your personal use. You're taking the public's property, everybody's property, and using it for just yourself. So what do you get under that lease? And the rent by statute is $1.50 a square foot a year. So you're not paying very much uh, in terms of commercial rent rates at all for this thing. So what do you get? In addition to the, I love that I'm never going to be able to get it out of my head now, right? In addition to the doo-doo easement argument, and separate from that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologize. You started something there, <laughs> you, Robert. You, you, oh boy. You've got this issue of what do you have as far as your property rights that you're saying are protected. And the way that the complaint was phrased, it was all about pollution getting into the river and that pollution affecting the harvest. Now, minor additional point that I don't know that anybody ever got to in this case directly. The complaint wanted to say they were completely prevented from using their oysters, that they're useless. That's not the way the system actually works. You get to go and pick up the oysters and you can take them to a separate place and put them in clean water and leave them in the clean water for time and then the state will monitor while you do that, and then you can take those and you can sell them. So it's not like you're actually stopped by this situation in reality, regardless of what the but, complaint said. But that costs money, right? Well, theoretically, except for the fact that this particular river has been closed to harvest due to pollution for a very, very long time. Well, parts of it, parts of it. But, but parts let, me, of it. let me make clear one thing, Robert, and then I want to hear from you on this, is it is this. Oysters eat doo-doo, okay? They thro- the, the doo-doo was not harming the oysters. They love it. But, but, the, but the point remains, the point remains that, you know, the, the things that we don't want to eat as humans, oysters thrive on. Isn't that right? You know, that's, again, you know, that what you don't know can't hurt you. That's my theory. It's sort of an extension of the three-second rule. When you drop something on the floor. I thought it was a five-second <laughs> rule. Yeah, five Ten-second? Second five, Ten-second? Okay. Three-day rule. Uh, Three-day rule. Three <laughs> trying to shorten it to you the three-second uh, rule now. We don't like to think about those things when we eat uh, particularly shellfish, I think. Yeah. You don't like to think that crabs eat dead people either. They did in Jaws. They bon sure appetit, did. everyone. But what we're, what we're getting at here is that, yes, you can take them and you can put them in other places and you can then sell them from there. So that that didn't really get into the the mix here, but that's how it actually works in reality. Um, so like the existing oysters that were there were not useless. They could go somewhere else and like go to like oyster rehab for a minute. 
They tried like to it's make like the, the Betty Ford to, Clinic for for oysters. Yeah, w- they tried to make the oysters go to rehab, and the plaintiff said, "No, no, no." Is oh. that what we're talking about? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As we learned from Amy Winehouse, no, you no, need to go no. to rehab. Uh, <laughs> wow, yes, I got that oyster, reference. Oyster, I got that reference. Good pull, guys. Good pull. Oyster rehab is actually called deparation. D u p d e p u r a t i o n in the code. So deparation is the fancy name for oyster rehab. I'm impressed. Okay, so. Um, th- th- so far, what we've discussed was the lawsuit that was filed in lower court, and the lower court promulgated a ruling. Um, uh-oh. There you go with your big words again. Promulgate? Do you even know what that means? Yeah. What? You know, it like sets forth an edict or something like All that. Right. All right. Dave, I'm so tired of having to explain big words to you. You went to UVA. You would think you knew these words, but I'll explain promulgated, okay? Okay. So promulgate is like... You know when you're in high school and you go to the prom, right? Right. Prom is not like open doors. Like anybody can come off the streets and go into the prom. You have to like check in at the table or the gate. Okay. And you have to tell them like, I'm a senior. And you have to give them like your student ID number or something. And then they let you in. Yeah. But sometimes like if you bring a date that's like in college or goes to another high school, they won't let them in. That's called getting promulgated. Like, oh man, Sarah and her date, like they couldn't get into prom. They got promulgated. They had to go to the Taco (laughs) Bell. You know what I mean? Oh. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with this definition. Okay. Well, look it up. I mean, just trying to help you out. Oh. So that's, anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. Okay. All right. So. And you're welcome. All right. So, so the defendants uh, in this case filed what's called a demur, which Robert already touched on, which is essentially saying, even if everything alleged by the plaintiffs are true or is true, uh, even though we don't admit that it's true, but even if it was, you still don't have a case, dismiss it. And the defendants went before the circuit court, uh, made their arguments, and the judge agreed with the defendants and essentially said that Darling, the United States Supreme Court case, is still good law. It's still good law, and I'm dismissing your case. And so the case was dismissed in the lower court, and the plaintiffs appealed to the Virginia Supreme Court. Now, you don't have an appeal by right. You have to file a petition for appeal. The Supreme Court will review that petition and determine whether or not it wants to hear the case. And in this case, the Supreme Court said, yes, we want to hear this. This is old law. We want another chance. We want another bite at this apple. And I'm going to tell you what, when you win a case in the lower court, and the other side appeals, and the Supreme Court grants what's called a writ, that is bad news, brother. That is bad news for you. One thing it can mean is that they didn't like what the lower court did. And so, Ross, how'd you feel when they granted that writ in your case? Yeah, that's that's really not the feeling that you want to have uh, in the lower court in that circumstance. Uh, you, won in, you won in the trial court. You won outright. The case is gone. It's called dismissed with prejudice, which means they don't get to get another bite at the apple at bringing back the case in the trial court. That's very uncommon. You generally get what's called a dismissal without prejudice, where they get to kind of try to reform their pleading, and you have to go back around and do everything again. No, this is you know first time out the gate. You win outright. So you're expecting, because it's based on a U.S. and Virginia Supreme Court case, and the trial court has said, yeah, you have an existing case, you win. And then the U.S., the Virginia Supreme Court comes back and says, oh, no, we want to hear this case. Uh, so this is like, pop the champagne, we won. Uh, recork the champagne. Oh, boy. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, wait, we thought this was a slam dunk. You oh, know? boy. 
All right. So, so we are going to get to the Virginia Supreme Court's handling and decision in this case in just a second. Those of us who have spent time in the right-of-way industry know firsthand how expensive the process is. Budgeting is a critical part of the infrastructure development process. Agencies particularly struggle with budgeting legal fees associated with land acquisition. That's largely because attorneys bill by the hour. And when you ask a lawyer how long something will take, he or she says, mm, I don't know. Dave Arnold and Ross Green at Pender and Coward's Eminent Domain Practice Group recognized the problem that this causes for condemning agencies and decided to take a very progressive, cutting-edge approach to the issue. Dave and Ross have developed an alternative fee arrangement that they can offer condemnors to avoid financial uncertainty of the billable hour. They can accept eminent domain cases for set amounts of money and caps on their fees in a particular case. Let's be clear on the true meaning of an alternative fee arrangement, or AFA. An AFA is not an estimate of the number of hours a case will take multiplied by the attorney's hourly rate. That is no good. A real AFA contains inherent efficiency of case management, usually through experience, technology, and automation, that results in cost savings, which are then shared with the client. Therefore, their clients can know the legal budget going into the case instead of dealing with nasty surprises on the back end in the form of an unexpected bill or cost overruns. To learn more about the cost certainty of an alternative fee arrangement, contact Dave Arnold and Ross Green at rightofway.law. So right here, clockwise from the lemon, we're going to have our four hetero salts, our north shores, and our shore maidens right there. You guys want any uh, Tabasco to go with anything you guys have or saltines? I think we have some house-made hot sauce. That looks good. Yeah. And does anybody need a cracker or anything? Are you all curious? What do you think? I don't care. You need crackers? I don't. Okay, yeah, we're good. All right, thank you. Okay, so. No, I only like the sweet. It's a punch. I don't know what seafoam tastes like, but I'm into it. Salty foam. Okay, now, Robert, the plaintiffs lost in the trial court. They filed an appeal to the Virginia Supreme Court. The Supreme Court granted the writ, much to our chagrin, and the organization that you currently work with, Pacific Legal Foundation, filed an amicus brief, mean, meaning uh, saying we're not a party to the case, but this is an important issue to us. Therefore, Supreme Court, you need to look out for the oystermen. Can you talk a little bit about what the theories were on appeal and, and the support for those theories? Yeah, I mean, it, when you're appealing. First of all, Ross is right. Uh, you know, the old adage is that when there's a discretionary review granted, courts generally don't take appeals that they don't have to if they just want to say, you got it all right, lower court, right? They they there's they want to do something with the case very often, uh, say you got it completely wrong, partially wrong, maybe right result, uh, wrong, wrong, wrong reasons. The theories on appeal were because it was a appeal from a motion to dismiss or a demur, um, were, were the same. And uh, but two underlying theories, I think, came out. First of all, what is the nature of the property right that the lease granted? And, and maybe this is related to, to that, too. And it's something uh, you alluded to earlier. You know, have things changed since Darling was decided 121 years ago? Do we still expect the waters to be used as, in the court's words, a depository for sewage? Or have there been intervening social and legal changes that say that the status of our rivers is somewhat different? You know, Clean Water Act, there have been a number of, uh, you know, the Federal Clean Water Act, there have been a number of Virginia 
um, statutory provisions adopted since then protecting or limiting, I should say, protecting the right to clean water through uh, the mechanism of prohibiting or making illegal uh, these type of or, or regulating these type of discharges uh, into public waters. So that was one of the main theories was was asking the court, haven't things changed since then? Haven't do we as a society still expect uh, our rivers to be used as depositories for sewage. I thought the answer to that was no. And then the second part of that was almost answered in the, the very first sentence of the uh, Supreme Court's eventual opinion is what's the nature of this property right? When I say it's the first sentence, well, why, why would the uh, oysterman lease portions of the river from the public, from the owners, from the Commonwealth, other than to harvest saleable, healthy, edible oysters. And when I say it's right there in the first sentence, the, the first sentence of the case of decision is the petitioners lease oyster beds from the Commonwealth. And here's the emphasis for the purpose of raising oysters. You know, it's not for the purpose of raising oysters to throw away, to move to other locations and clean out. It was the purpose of raising oysters. You know, why else would they have leased these? They thought that that was their prop part of their property right was to raise edible oysters, or at least oysters that could be sold uh, for human consumption. Well, Ross, you and your team put together a, an incredible brief in opposition. What say ye? Well, I think Roberts described the court's ruling accurately. They latched on in the opinion written by Justice McCullough to the nature of the property right involved here, at which is essentially the right to exclude other harvesters of oysters from your oyster grounds. So you've got public bottom for oysters. You've got public river bottoms people go and get oysters from. There's people that can do that on open public oyster ground. You can go to areas where oysters just grow naturally and get them and sell them. The leases, as opposed to that, are the right to essentially cordon off a particular area. You go out and market with poles. They used to be bamboo. These days they're more like PVC and say, this area that I rent from the government, you other oyster harvesters can't go to that area and harvest the oysters that are in there. I get to keep you out of there. I'm the one that gets to harvest oysters from that area because I pay the government $1.50 a square foot. And essentially, that's all that you get. Other people in the public don't get to go there. You get to go there. But you don't get the right to control the quality of the water column. You don't get, for $1.50 a square foot, the right to say what does and doesn't flow over your leased oyster grounds in the water that's in the river. You've rented this one area, but the river is much bigger than that, and the contents of the river are not something that you get to control for that lease. And here, while our erstwhile friend Robert is saying he's envisioning it as flooding of these areas based on a line of Virginia cases that deal with upland flooding, this isn't upland. This isn't dry land that you own outright, so you get all of these different rights in what we call the bundle of sticks. So if you've got property, aside from the dirt, legally a bunch of different rights that you can exercise versus that property. Here, you don't own fee simple title, the, the complete title to this real estate. You've just leased it from the state, and this is the important part. When you lease property from the state, those leases are, sorry about the fancy lawyer terms, 
what's called in derogation of common law. What? Huh? They are essentially not normal leases. They don't operate the way that leasing a piece of upland would work. They're not the same. They're they're a different, more limited thing. You only get exactly what it says in the law that you get. And these oyster leases have a bunch of code sections in the Virginia Code that specify exactly how they work. Now, a normal lease, you've got a piece of paper. You signed it with the guy you're renting from, your landlord, and it should say all the different things you can and can't do, theoretically. The paper leases for these oyster leases don't really say anything other than where it is. A a drawing that shows you where the piece you rented is. So the place you would normally look in a land lease for, hey, how does this work? Kristen, you got a question? No, I mean, but like, okay, you're so you're saying you you are basically leasing that little piece, that that square footage of what's under the water, but that doesn't guarantee clean water flowing over it. It doesn't guarantee that there's not a drought and there's no water. It doesn't guarantee that there's some flooding upriver. I mean, it's it's just here's where it is. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's here's where it is. And other people who want to harvest oysters, other members of the public who want to harvest oysters can't get them from your place. Okay. So, so what you're saying is really it's a, it's a lease of exclusion where I have the right to this piece of property on the river floor and other people can't come take my oysters, right? But it's not a guarantee of there will always be crystal clear, right. I, I see lovely water flowing over the top. But Robert, Robert, is your head about to explode? Robert Thomas, what do you say about that? That's kind of tough to come back from. Do, do you have a guaranteed right of clean water? Yeah, well, and in some states you do. Oh, you're um, out there from that crunchy left coast. I know what's going on here. Well, it's it's just north of you guys. Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Constitution has a provision in there that says everyone has a right to a clean and healthy environment. That's right not crunchy state. left coast, buddy. No, no that that's is, Coalfield that law. Is, yeah. Maybe that one's observed more in the breach than in the observance. Maybe in Pennsylvania. But there is a growing trend in state constitutions to recognize this thing. I don't think Virginia has that. Um, and maybe that was that Virginia had a similar provision um, that might have altered the outcome. But l- let me say, I hope we have a right to a clean and healthy environment. I like clean water. I like clean air. Um, and again, I go back to that question. If they thought they were simply renting from the state, you know, this is my exclusive area. I'm otherwise like a member of the public, but this is my exclusive area where I can harvest oysters for better or worse. That's that's one thing, but I'm not sure that that's what they thought they were getting from the state. And, and this this maybe goes to maybe pun intended my beef with the oyster case. So this is now surf and turf. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's have let's have the turf. <laughs> this thing was described as a lease, and. I'm not one to, to say that form should control over substance, but this looked moral to me, at least the way the court ultimately described it, more like what I might call a license or a profit or mining rights. I mean, this reminded me much more of a mining right in the land as opposed to a lease, and yet it was still called a lease. And when we describe things as leases, that is a severance of the estate in old common law terms, right? The divided estate uh, in eminent domain law terms. It is a severance of a division of the estate. So uh, the the owner of the fee simple owns some rights and usually some type of reversion. The leasehold owner has rights of possession and use and all the things normally associated uh, with a fee simple owner. 
But this one, at least the way the court described it, looked more like a lease or a profit or a mining right. And yet it was described as a lease. And so I go back to the, you know, the first sentence of that case again, the oystermen, I think reasonably thought they were getting a, some kind of right from the state that they had purchased some kind of right from the state for the purpose of raising oysters to eat. Can't sell pet oysters, I suppose, right? At that point, there was some, you know, go like, off. They could be like the pet rock. That guy made like a gazillion dollars, right? Sounds like yeah, a good exactly. business plan. Hold yeah. on, but, but what people think they're getting and what they're actually getting based on like the law and the language in the lease, like you, you can think you're getting something, but if it's... Well, right. I think and, where and, Robert is heading, and I don't want to cut him off, is when you look over in regulatory takings, which the plaintiff's types of takings that aren't physical takings, uh, types by too much litigation or types by too much legis legislation, essentially taking away your rights in a property. You have this concept called reasonable investment backed expectations, but the plaintiffs here didn't go after a regulatory <laughs> takings claim. They right. specifically said this is a, what they're alleging is a physical uh, taking that they're trying to not do a regulatory taking. So bringing regulatory takings concepts into this would just muddy things. It's not about what they expected. And even, I, I don't agree with Robert that they could expect that because when you look at the statutes that apply to this, they're essentially the same statutes that existed in the Darling case over a century ago. This has been around a long, long time and the wording in the regime, the wording in the statutes that make it possible to do this it's the same words. You haven't changed over time the rights that you get in an oyster lease. Now, they're trying to say environmental things have changed. Well, <laughs> the court's point is, well, that may be so, but what you get under this lease hasn't changed. So you didn't get the right to control the water column. You just got this one limited right that's not See, there. and this is what we wanted. We wanted this little duel between you two. This is great. By the way, follow these two guys on Twitter for more of this fun banter. Um, Robert Thomas, you're at INV Condemnation on Twitter, right? Exactly. Okay, and Ross is at Right of Way Ross. So follow these guys at, and lots of good content there. I think this is a perfect time. Let's just break it up a little bit, Rob. I know you're familiar with our little game called Over Under Push. You ready? Oh, yeah. Let's play a round of Over Under Push. Surprisingly, just kidding, this one is oyster themed. Are you ready? I'm all set. Okay. For those of you who are new to our podcast or haven't heard this before, we are playing Over Under Push. We are going to give Rob three items, and he has to tell us whether they are overrated, underrated, or, you know, it's just a push. They're aptly rated. So here are your three items. I'm going to give you all three, and then we'll go... We'll go for each one. Number one, oysters on the half shell. Raw oysters on the half shell. Number two, steamed oysters. And number three, oyster stew. Okay? Yeah, let's see. To think so about what, that. what are let's we go, starting with? Let's start with oysters on the half shell. You know, let me say that after this conversation, I might say they're all overrated. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's let's put that aside. I don't think uh, there's there's not a lot that could uh, disabuse me of my love for oysters in almost all forms. So the first one is on the half shell. Definitely, uh, you know, can they ever be overrated? No, right? No, Those, nah. I think that's the best way to have them. A little bit of uh, 
hot sauce to bet, you know, no Texas beef. I know you guys don't like that. So I'll <laughs> no say, no, sir. No, I'll sir. say uh, a, a Tabasco, a little Tabasco, little horseradish, yes. you know, and, and that's the, in my opinion, the best way. So does that qual, does that mean that they're underrated? I think so. Yeah, yes. that, that, I think that, that's, that fits the underrated category, correct? Correct. And Robert, I mean, you nailed it. That's correct. Okay, good. Good job. Good. All right. We agree. We agree. So all, the court agrees on this. Yes, well, but keep in mind, when we're playing over under push on the Pendulum Land podcast, we do get the final say as to whether or not your opinions are correct. Okay. <laughs> okay, all right. All right, next up, steamed oysters. Overrated, sorry. Um, He's killing steamed it. Steamed anything, steamed anything just reminds me of steamed broccoli. Um, uh, and so due to the association in my mind. You just, just said duty. Yeah, well, <laughs> fair enough. You know what? We're going to agree with you on that now. Number right. three. Okay. This is this two is a, this this one's uh, this one's a little complicated. Oysters yep. too. You know, I'll give the lawyer answer on this one. Depends depends who's making it. Oh uh, my! We thought we were going to trick you, and actually, we have an alternate question because oysters too. It depends. What's the base? Is it a broth based? Is it like a milky based? Is it stew based? And Dave, can you weigh in on this? What's the correct answer? Sure. If it's if it has a milk base, kind of a bisque base, it can be very, very underrated, very good. Mm-hmm. Just a clear chicken broth base or, yeah, clear broth, no bueno. Get out of no here. Bueno. Yeah, go okay, away. so so that was a trick question. We're going to give you another oh. one, okay? Here's your okay. here's your final final over-under push. Fried oysters. Oh, can I choose underrated twice? Sure, you can do whatever you want. Oh. I mean, we well, may disagree yes. with you, uh, but, yeah, it's your call. Uh, that's uh, the next best next to on the half shell you know if you've got some that maybe have been in the in the river if you know what i mean we know now you so know, they taste extra you like want, hot you want to slather them up in some cornmeal and uh hit them up in the deep fryer and get rid of any of that what is it called coliform fecal coliform okay yes. okay you know guys. you want to zap any of that in some uh, uh deep fried lard or you know some hot lard that's the way oh to go. Boy. So you're maybe you're so, you don't have to worry so much about the quality. Robert, you know, Uh-oh. plug a lard. Robert, <laughs> if you were a baseball player and you were hitting the seventy five percent, you'd be in the Hall of Fame. I think I think Dave but, is saying you were incorrect on that last uh, yeah, answer. Yeah. Fried say oysters, you? it's a push. They're 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 not overrated. It's a push. Really? It, they're just okay. are what they are. And I think you kind of described that. Well, just now, you know, you got to go up to my favorite place when I'm, you know, in your neck of the woods up in Urbana. Got to yeah. go there and try them because their oyster basket awfully good. OK, awfully good. well, when this COVID thing's over and you're back in this neck of the woods, can we make that a thing? Oh, yeah. Go have some got oysters. Well, you know, we'll there's, there's got to be <laughs> some sort of an oyster spam dish that we could come oh, up with. Oh, you, you forgot about the best one. What's that? Oyster stuffing. I don't know what that means. We're not getting a favorable reaction from Dave Arnold. <laughs> no, no it can, that that can be delicious if it's prepared correctly. And I have a feeling that somebody in Ross's family has a great recipe for that. Oh, man. Yeah, that's when you, instead of like regular like stofers out of a box to put in your turkey. Yeah. You can stuff it with oysters. Okay. Oh, listen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not scared of that. No. All right. Well, Robert, thank you for once again participating in our over-under push. Oh. You did a oh. – I would say that was a successful round. Yeah, I agree. That okay. was a great round, Robert, and as usual, you nailed it. But let's get back Let's get back to our discussion here because I want to take a little pause, and we've talked about what happened in the lower court. We talked about the arguments before the Supreme Court and the various theories on either side. Let's just take a little pause and let's talk about the ramifications of this case, 
okay? Essentially, these plaintiffs were saying that our oyster leases were condemned, and you, Mr. City, is responsible for that. Therefore, you must pay us just compensation. And, by the way, this is an inverse condemnation case where, at least in Virginia, if you prevail, you, the landowner, prevails on an inverse condemnation case, the other side pays your attorney's fees. So we had towns, municipalities, and counties up and down the coast with their eyes peeled on this case because if the plaintiffs win and the court reverses the lower court decision, potentially, Robert, don't you think that any locality, any local government could be responsible for the condemnation of oyster leases? Potentially, yeah. I mean, and that, that I think was, you know, when I say I have a, a beef with the outcome, it's perhaps uh, the what you alluded to could be responsible, and the question is who decides. The court became the judges or the justices of the Supreme Court uh, were the line drawers here. They said no way, no how. In no circumstances uh, comparable to these uh, will a municipality, wastewater district ever be responsible for this type of situation. And I think all that the plaintiffs were asking for, at least at the Virginia Supreme Court, was to get the case before a jury and see whose expectations are reasonable. And I think on this one, uh, the oysterman uh, wanted to go uh, to get to a jury and have a jury decide whether their expectations were uh, off the map or not, uh, or, or reasonable or unreasonable in lawyer terms. So, you know, I think what you alluded to, Dave, was that, uh, you know, uh, a win at the Supreme Court for the property owners wouldn't mean that every municipality was on the hook every time something like this happened. It just meant that they could be. And what the Supreme Court did was draw a really bright line and said, no, it, they, they, no matter what the circumstances, as long as they're comparable to this, uh, municipalities won't be liable. Well, Ross, you represent municipalities and local governments in a lot of different jurisdictions, primarily towards the coast, right? And you're licensed in North Carolina, and there's a lot of coastline in North Carolina. What would a reversal in this case have meant for your clients? I mean, we lawyers are paid to figure out what the worst case scenario is. What do you think? Well, this is sort of a asteroid misses the earth scenario. And I think the court sort of recognized that because an oyster is at the bottom of the river and the river drains everything. It's the whole, you know, if you take if you look at the underpinnings of Robert's doo-doo easement concept, it's because <laughs> everything flows into the river. And, and interesting here, and what we would have had to get into if we had to go try the the first stage, or well, the second stage of this case about liability, would have been: is it the city that or the water district that's responsible? For this, because they're not the only source of potential contamination for a river. A river drains everything there is. So farms, a river like this, I mean, it's a, a very large river. So you're draining, you know, this huge watershed of farms, factories, neighborhoods. I mean, it's not just your sewer doo doo. I mean, you got your dog doo doo, your raccoon doo doo, like your you know possum doo doo, cow doo doo. Okay, 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 okay. All the doo doos, we got it, Ross. Yeah, all the possible <laughs> different like panoply of doo doo. Uh, panoply of doo doo. I don't believe I'm familiar that a, with that. Is that, that like phrase. a heavy metal band That's or like something? Like a smorgasbord of fecal matter. Right. Exactly. Oh boy, can we edit some of these doo doo references out? Not a chance. Bromding okay. Nagy <laughs> in the amount of doo doo. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. 
the Bromding Nags are the giant people in, in Gulliver's Travels. So you can say Bromding Naggy and to mean gigantic. Lilliputian means small. Why okay, am I doing okay. definitions back, on the podcast? I don't back understand. On, back on point here. So you've got these this panoply of potential uh, sources of pollution, one of which might be a municipality or a sewage district. So you would have to prove that that's what's actually causing what's happening here. And I found it, did find that very interesting because they attached a ton of stuff, perhaps too much to the pleading here about all these different orders of closure and all these different environmental things. And this didn't really have anything to me to do with environmental law. It's an eminent domain case about property rights. It's not a mashup with environmental law. It's about, you know, what property rights did you rent from the government and is what you're saying here one of those property rights and was it harmed? And I think the court came back and said it wasn't, but if it did, where is the limit at who you could sue? If you've got a right, so you've rented the lowest point in the drainage structure, everything flows down to this from everybody around, who could you not sue? I mean, it's not just oh, you, well, you can sue the government, you can sue the city, you can sue the you know HRSD. Why can't you sue the neighboring property owners? Why can't you sue the property owners upstream from the coast who drain into the riverbed? Who could you not sue if, if anything ever gets you know to the bottom of the river, suddenly there's liability? It's like at the infinite well of liability. Okay, dear listeners. Well, our wonderful guests have gotten a little bit ahead of us, but we're going to reveal... The outcome of this case. Prepare for the longest drum roll ever. Uh-oh. Stay tuned. And, Stay with us. And, 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 hello. and, okay, the Supreme Court of Virginia announced its ruling just a couple of months ago, and they found in favor of the municipality and HRSD, meaning they did not reverse the trial court's opinion. They upheld the trial court's opinion, making Rob Thomas a very sad man and Ross Green a very happy man. Rob doesn't look so sad. We can see him on a, a, our Zoom call. He, he's still smiling and chipper. Well, to be fair, Rob didn't handle this case directly. Rob only works with an entity that filed a friend of the court brief, so essentially he's aligned uh, an, with them, uh, but it wasn't amicus, 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 an yeah, amicus brief. Right? I learned but, something. But Rob has made it clear that he does not agree with our position in this case, and I respect that. I respect that. You have to have two sides to every story. So, Rob, um, as, as um, somebody who is sympathetic to the non-prevailing side, any comments you'd like to add before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, the distinction that the the court drew between the, the water and the riverbed. Hmm, you know, jury's still out, no pun intended, on that one in my mind. On that, I mean, I think it was a policy call by the court uh, to, to make these cases questions of law, not questions of fact, to go to a jury. And uh, one of the things I will point out that I had a hard time sort of squaring up was actually pointed out to me uh, by a student of mine who, by the way, is publishing a piece in the Zoning and Planning Law Report coming out fairly soon on the case. He followed it from the very beginning, and he's kind of an inverse condemnation guru. Let me let me call him that, Ryan, Ryan Franklin. Yeah, uh, okay, so, hold, so on, he's, hold on. Hold on, let's just give this kid his due. Um, yeah. And I assume he's a kid because he's in law school. He could be much older, but he's going to get a piece published in a national publication. What's, what's his name? And tell us a little bit about him. 
Sure. His name is Ryan Franklin, and he is uh, currently in his final year at uh, William and Mary Law School. And he and I worked on a, a writing project uh, last year. And the point of that writing project was to look at inverse condemnation law, the status of inverse condemnation law in Virginia, because he is going to practice in the Hampton Roads area once once he is uh, obtains his JD and takes the passes the Virginia bar. And so his paper at the end of the semester was so good, I suggested that he try to get it published. And he got a publication offer from the Zoning and Planning Law Report, you know, West Publishing, Thompson, I think it used to be West Publishing, but it's Thompson Reuters. Um, and uh, it'll be coming out in March or within a couple months. And so he added in, once this case came down, of course, added in um, some thoughts about uh, that decision and pointed out something that uh, I had not really thought of. And it goes, this is a technical point, but it goes back to a case you are all familiar with. And that's the Livingston case about, I think it's the Harris Teeter flooding and liability for Harris Teeters. And, you know, and he said, well, if oysters can be compensable for flooding, if they're sitting on the shelf in Harris Teeter, why is this different? I think, uh, Ross, you pointed out that, yeah, it is different. You pointed out the reasons that the court saw it differently that uh, your rights in oysters that are sitting on a grocery shelf as the grocery store owner might be different than your rights as uh, the court saw them when you have a lease license, whatever we might call it, mining rights to oysters in a public river. So I wanna give a hat tip to Ryan for getting me to think about that. And anyway, yes, I wanna give a hat tip to Ryan on that and uh, look forward to, to reading his work uh, when it gets published. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah they're nice. in the same line of cases. The Harris Teeter sewage flooding thing is AGCS Marine Casualty or ACGS uh, yes. Marine you. Casualty. Uh, Livingston is that one about putting a stream in essentially a restricted canal or something and then flooding a uh, neighborhood. Oh, yes, thank you. But they're, they're in the same vein of upland flooding cases. But to me, and I think the court agreed, your rights in oysters sitting on the shelf in a grocery store are not the same as your rights in oysters sitting on the bottom of the river, particularly because there is a statute that says your right to harvest oysters out of the public waters, regardless of location, regardless of if they're your least oysters, are subject to the health regulations of the state, which is where the closure order comes from. So I don't think your property rights in those two circumstances are on the same footing. I think they're distinctly different here. But okay, there's three left. One of each. Which one did you like the best, Ross? I like... Which one is this one? That's the North Shore Gold. You want that one? Yeah, sure. Okay. I like both of those. You pick which... You want Hatteras or... Okay. Cheers, guys. Those are delicious. Thanks again to Rob Thomas, Ross Green for the Pendulum Land Podcast. Until next time, see ya and enjoy those bivalves. Guys, guys, way too much doo-doo talk. Way too much. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's on me. You know, hey. <laughs> you, know you know, guys, once once you start talking that, you just can't get off it, right? I mean, just, <laughs> you know, you like a, it's like a magnet to us have to